From Sandwich Community TV, I'm Manx Taiki Magyar, and this is Blindside. The entire audio interviews that I've cut to make my short-form video documentaries. In the spring of 2017, the Sandwich Glass Museum was hosting a new exhibit by renowned plate glass artist, Sydney Hutter. So in preparation for the exhibit, myself and previous Sandwich TV employee, Payson Tickham, went out to a studio in Newton, Massachusetts, where we got to speak to him about his artwork and the idea of being an acclaimed artist. Okay, well I started out as a glass, I started out as a sociology major in college, took a crafts class, enjoyed working with my hands, decided that I wanted to do something more physical, so I took a glass blowing class. And I spent my undergraduate career blowing glass. During that time, I had to figure out what I wanted to do for the future. I decided to go to graduate school. I came here to Mass College of Art in Boston to go to graduate school. And during the second, second year, first semester, there was a fire in the studio. And so the glass blowing facility was shut down. So I had to figure out something to make that I could make that I wanted to make that dealt with glass that was sculptural and didn't use blown glass. And so I invented the plate glass vase. And I've been making the plate glass vase since 1979 now. And I've made it in 20 or 30 different varieties. Um, the show that I'm having at the Sandwich Glass Museum is a retrospective uh, chronological history of all of the different plate glass vases that I've made over time. Um, in the process of making the plate glass vases, I've satisfied my interests in technology for several different um, fields. One is the glass field, another is the adhesive field, and another is the pigment field, which deals with the coloration. And now, recently, I've started to deal with what are called special effect pigments, which are the they're either mica, aluminum, or, or glass, alumina, or glass, and they're, they're reflective and refractive of the light, so they sparkle. So I guess you could call them the glitter and the glitz part. Awesome. Um, and then, what about, can you talk a little bit how you formed this studio that you have here, how long you've been here for? I've been in this space in Newton since 1991. And prior to that, I was in a space in Jamaica Plain that I shared with other artists. And um, I decided that I wanted to work on my own, so I came out here and started my own studio. And I, as I say, I've been here quite a few years, and I um, have to say that I, don't, I can't do it all myself. There's so much involved in being an artist in today's um, society that I have people that help me. So. Um, over the past 20 or more years here, I've had probably 20 or 30 assistants that have helped me. I have certain people who have been here consistently and then other people who come in and go. Um, all of the work is my original thought and then it can be a collaboration. Um, with other art, other people who are working with me as we as the work evolves, and uh, I'm o I'm open to listening to people's ideas, and um, I like to come up with a concept and then sort of see where it goes. So a lot of the a lot of the evolution of the work comes from the collaboration, but it also comes from doing the work. And as you make something, whether it's a success or a failure, you learn from it and go on to the next piece. And just to go back on one of the things you said previously, you mentioned you didn't want to do hot glass. And just for personally, because I'm just connected with hot glass blowing, what was that, what was that sort of decision it, when it came from? It, How did it, come from? it wasn't that I didn't want to do hot glass. It's that I couldn't do it because the studio was closed. <laughs> and by the time I was given a letter that said, you know, once we get the studio rebuilt, you can come back. But I had already graduated from school and um, ended up... Uh, you know, getting a job. I actually, I student or I uh, substitute taught in the Boston Public Schools for a while, so that I could go in early to the school, get out at two thirty, and get to my studio by three o'clock, and then work until eight or nine at night. Um, the interesting thing is, uh, I am going out to the Museum of Glass in Tacoma in October to have an artist in residency where I'm going to have a team of glass blowers that I can work with. And I have in the 
past periodically gone and blown, blown glass or been involved with glass blowers in their studios um, making parts for pieces and that um, you know I would hope to continue doing. Um, I, I, I'm trying to s sort of change the the way I'm working and diff you know to keep it exciting and um, keep it flowing and you know one of the things about being an artist is there are no rules and you um, you decide what you want to do and then you go about doing it and you learn from it and from that you go on and do more and learn more and it's a continuous process. Um, you should have as an artist and as a glass artist you should have some technical expertise, some knowledge basis of what the material is and you should also have some understanding of art and art history so that you can sort of I'm not going to say you, you can borrow from the masters and incorporate it into your work because like I say there are really no rules for art but there are sort of you need to you can't be all over the place you have to have some sort of a con concept I guess would be the word of what you're trying to do so my concept is that I'm trying to interpret the vessel which gets back to your question about the glass blowing it's some, somebody could say, well, he's just a frustrated glass blower that tries to make glass that looks like vessels that he can control because the plate glass process is much more along the lines of uh, constructed woodworking cabinetry type of thing or machine metalworking where everything is done through a process and there's measurement and everything is flat or it can be round, but if it's round, you're making it round. It's not initially. Most of the work I do is with quarter-inch plate glass and half-inch plate glass, um, which the half-inch is, let's say it's twice the thickness of quarter-inch, it's twice as hard to work with, too, because it's unforgiving. The quarter-inch, you know, you can cut it pretty easily, you can grind it pretty easily. Half-inch, you're, you're talking about a lot of material removal and, um, it, you know, glass is a very interesting material, and one of the things about having this show at the Sandwich Glass Museum is how excited I am to be able to sort of show how my work relates to the history of glass in this New England area, in the Cape area, and the whole idea that um, the industrialization of glass, like the reason the Sandwich Glass Museum is there is that um, they, needed, they needed hurricane lamps, they needed glassware to drink out of, um, they they made uh, window parts at, at times. They've made all kinds of different objects. And then there's the other side of it, which is the decorative artistic part, where um, there was a lot of uh, stamping and casting and pressing and um, different, you know, ideas that made from making one to making a hundred or two hundred or a thousand. And that, um, you know, one of the things is I don't make thousands of pieces. I only make. 20 to 30 pieces a year so they're much more one of a kind even though they may sort of fit into a body or a series of objects. Great. Um, yeah I mean I, I definitely love the idea of like the whole thing with working with glass is not you know it's not not anything against painting and whatnot but it's a completely different craft you know the technical aspects of it all you know the cutting using all the machinery is that what kind of, you were kind of referring to at one point? Absolutely. I, 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 being, you know, I've worked with glass since 1974, so, you know, 43 years is a long time. And I've seen, when I started out, it was very rudimentary because what was happening was the glass movement had started as uh, an offshot of the ceramics movement, which really came about in the 50s where... The idea was taking things out of a factory and making it in an individual studio. And what happened is Harvey Littleton and Dominic Labino started the glass movement in Toledo, Ohio in 1962. And at the time they were blowing uh, marble. They were using marbles that they made for fiberglass, which was like a really hard glass. And little did they know that places like Pierpoint and uh, other other places down in West Virginia, you know, already had figured out how to use 
glass to blow that was soft and that they could manipulate. And um, the ultimate would be uh, Stuban at Corning where they used 40% uh, lead glass that um, the joke used to be that the workers could go out for lunch and come back and still be working on the same piece. The glass was so soft. Um, and we were, you know, it was sort of one of the, the, the lines is that we worked in the Flintstone era, that it was, you know, sort of, you know, we were making, like at the Sandwich Glass Museum, they have hurricane lamps. Well, we used to make pieces that would stand through a hurricane because they were so heavy that, you know, they wouldn't blow away. And it evolved, and then as, as the schools grew and as um, more people got involved in the glass movement, uh, people started to travel. They started to go to Scandinavia and they started to go to Italy, which Italy of course has the sort of the ultimate tradition of glass. They've been making glass in Italy since oh, around the, the Roman times. Um, and it's evolved and they've gone like 16th century Venetian glass. Some of the pieces are like people can't even figure out how they made something like that, you know, like a, a dolphin uh, goblet or something like that with, um, you know, all the little parts on it and all that. Um, and what happened was, uh, and Dale Chihuly, who's the sort of the king of glass at this point, um, started, he came up with this concept of a glass school where people could come from all over the world to exchange ideas. And so that's when Pilchuck started and at some point they brought over Lino Taglapietra who was an Italian master and that sort of changed everything as far as glass blowing goes because he had skills that no one knew about because one of the things about Venetian glass is that it's on an island in Murano off of Venice and they put it there intentionally to keep the workers from escaping and there were two reasons. One was to keep the workers from escaping to go elsewhere and the other was the fact that it could cause a fire and burn down a, a city. And so there's sort of like um, the diaspora of glass and it left Italy, went through to Germany and through the, into Scandinavia and then went to England. And then in the 1600s, it came over to the United States and the place that it came to originally was the Cape in the Boston area and then Plymouth and the Cape. And part of that was because there was a readily available material supply. There was sand, which is the number one ingredient. Glass is basically just fused sand, but to make that fused, you have to add some, um, some fluxes to make it melt easier, and you have to make, add in something to make it a little bit more durable. So basically glass is sand, soda, and lime. And so um, there were the glass factories were built around here to make those those products and um, you know then the glass movement became sort of an art form taken from that and now um, glasses in museums all over the world and there are uh, collections and shows in all kinds of museums and um, it's really in the last 50 years of the studio glass movement it's gone from uh, a bunch of people sort of let's messing around in their garages to it's the irony of the whole thing is that in the commercial glass world it's gone back to the factory approach where there are more than one person working on a piece and they are all um, you know involved in the process of making something and some of the things that are being made in um, blown glass today are just um, amazing there's a guy out in the Seattle, Washington area named uh, Raven Sky River and he makes these objects that are I, I guess you could say that they're anatomically correct to either uh, fish or other animals and they're they're amazing like I watched him make a turtle in Corning at the glass conference last summer and it was it was it was incredible that he could basically with his hands and his mind come up with this concept of making something that looks like a sea turtle. Um, so, uh, and there are a lot, you know, there, the glass movement is sort of spread out now to the point where there are um, artists that are making art exclusively. It's, it has no other purpose but to be art. 
And then there are people who are making glass objects that could be considered art because of the craft ability, which is one of those, you know, there's that age-old argument. Is it art or is it craft? Well, um, a painter like Leonardo da Vinci or um, Picasso or somebody like that, well, they're skilled craftspeople. They were talented craftsmen, but they were also artists. So are they craftsmen or are they artists? Well, because they're painters, they're considered artists. But a glass person is considered a craft person, but there is an art to it that not everybody can do it. There's a craft to it that not everybody can do it. So there are th those lines have been sort of erased now. There's, there used to be in the 70s and 80s this argument, is it craft or is it art? Well, you could have that argument forever now, but it can't be resolved because they're fused together because the art is the craft and the craft is the art. Yeah, I think my, my father struggles with that concept constantly of being either an artist or a craftsman. You know, I think that he really battles with that. Um, yeah, well, that is definitely an issue, and it's, um, f for me personally with my career, I make a lot of stuff that... Um, is extremely expensive because it's expensive to make on top of the fact that I've been doing it so long that I'm in a sort of a an echelon of the art glass world where you know I sold a piece for this much money so now that's how much the next one's gonna sell for but they don't necessarily all sell so I have somewhat of a reputation of being you know this quote-unquote art star, but it's not like it's always, you know, selling, you know, and that, that part of it is it's both good in the fact that I am committed and I have a concept of this is what I want to do. I want to make this stuff and I'll make it no matter what, even if it, you know, costs me to make it, let's say, whereas some of the artists, they learn how to make the work so that they're producing it to sell and that is you know they're contrary concepts making things you know but everybody has to make something that's that sells eventually or else you you don't do it anymore right. so um, and it is hard like with especially with glass blowing because there's only so many things you can do um, and and you're you're locked into this this well it's it's blown glass um, that's one of the sort of beauties of Chihuly is that he took blown glass and turned it into sculpture and um, like he makes chandeliers that aren't lights you know I mean what sense is that you know it's not really a chandelier everybody calls it a chandelier well where's the light bulb you know um, so it's art you know um, so it, and it everybody has their own way of doing it uh, and that's you know goes back to that no rules thing um, and it, it evolves. I mean, there are, you know, there are critics and there are museums that sort of push the, the movement of the work and it's, you know, goes to that, um, it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know type of thing with the work because um, getting back to this whole history and the philosophy of glass, um, there was the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, somebody made something and then it got regurgitated and reinvented 20 years later and then it got regurgitated and reinvented another 20 years later. So the genus of the idea may be here in the 60s, but the evolution of the piece and the way it looks in the 2017 is, is different, but it's the same because it's, the similar, it's a similar idea just reinvented again. And one of the things that I pride myself on is when somebody looks at one of my pieces, they say, I've never seen anything like that before. And that brings me some, you know, satisfaction and warmth in knowing that I'm doing something that is unique. And I'm not, you know, I'm not denigrating anybody that, that makes something because you have to have a basis for where you come from because that's, you know, goes back to the rules, no rules and, the, you know, like the philosophy of, you know, Sculpture is one thing and painting is another and how people, you know, I mean, it's like, like with painting, Jackson Pollock, all of a sudden he started throwing paint on a canvas and everybody was like, well, he's not a painter because he's just throwing paint on the canvas. Well, 
he's one of the most famous painters in you know history because what he did was something that nobody else did which was say to painting well you don't necessarily have to do a portrait of somebody you can actually do something much more abstract and it'll still you know bring emotion like as an, another um, painter that I find interesting and I had a conversation just the other day with somebody about is Mark Rothko and you know he was a, a very troubled person he ended up committing suicide and all of his paintings were super super dark and this person was telling me about they saw a show of his in Philadelphia and the work in the room brought her to tears and I'm like you know how can something that's so dark and non descriptive like it's just colors on a canvas how can that bring that much emotion out but it does you know and that's that sort of um, gets to that whole thing about art does do you react to it how does it affect you does it make you think does it make you uh, emote you know it, if it does something then it can be considered a success in terms of the you know person making it like you know with my pieces it's sort of like I make them to give me a satisfaction of having I, I call them markers in time they sort of like this is what I've been doing for this period of time whether it's months or years or whatever but then the piece goes on to somebody else and it has meaning to them because it's their piece now it's not my piece anymore I made it but I don't have it in my physical possession so those those are somebody wanted it enough that they want to put it in their home and then you know I get it all the time when I go to shows oh your piece is the most popular piece in our house you know people like it for this reason or that reason and like one time I was at a show and a guy was talking to me about the piece and he says you know there are two schools of philosophy with your piece and I said oh really what is that and he said well one is the Marcel Duchamp new descending a staircase and the other is science and a DNA helix and he was talking about the core of some of my plate glass pieces have strips that they helix around and so they do look like a DNA helix and they also sort of emote that um, sort of the look of Marcel Duchamp's new descending a staircase which was an abstracted person that was basically geometry a bunch of planes and shapes that made a painting that looked like a, a person going down a staircase. Um, well, yeah, going off, to kind of hopefully go towards the ending, um, going off about the whole emotional release, how about for yourself when you're creating these pieces, when you're thinking about designing these pieces, can you talk about your feelings about creating art in a, in a, in a specific sense and in a general sense too? I know it's very charged. That is, that is a tough question. Um, that I would have to think about because it, it, like as I, I may go off on a tangent in answering this question and I um, back in the 80s I was involved in a, with a group of people that were building the brick bottom artist building which now is in Somerville but originally it was planned to be in South Boston and I went to these meetings to discuss developing the space and it was going to be an artist building and there were all these sort of um, directives as to how the, the thing was going to come together and in the meeting somebody came up with the question well he's not an artist or she's not an artist how do we know if they're an artist or not and it's like the answer to that question is if you're asking that question then you probably aren't because it's sort of like um, you know being cross-eyed, colorblind, uh, having depth perception issues, which are all personal issues I have, but it doesn't stop me from doing what I like to do, which is make stuff. And I can't not make stuff. It's sort of like if I came in here um, with nothing in this room, I would figure out a way to start to fill this room with stuff, and that would be whatever it is I'm making and it it you know um, it comes like I say that I'm a, sort of an amalgamation of all of the things that my parents taught me the fact that my 
Dad was sort of uh, an intellectual, well, not sort of, he was a very intellectual, scientifically based uh, psychologist. And my mom was a linguist, so I had this thing of um, the mind and the mouth, and I sort of think that I'm the hands that put that whole project together. And then all of the teachers that I've had over the years and all of the friends that I've had who you know, I respect for what they do because they all have a vision. And basically, being an artist is having a vision of something that comes from within that you want to tell other people. The, the issue is that you can't just say, like, the question, are they artists? I'm an artist. You have to live it. It's like, it's not something that um, you can invent. Though you're invent, it's sort of like this oxymoron because you're inventing a career being an artist. It's not something like you go to art school. Like my daughter is 17; she's a junior in high school. She wants to be an artist, and she could go to a bunch of different art schools. And you know, I'm lobbying her to go to Mass Art because Mass Art is sort of a like a a, a workers' art school. It's uh, you know, it's um, you're there to to learn about art, but you're not. Um, I don't want to denigrate anything, but you're not coddled, and you're not in this you know environment like at RISD. It's a much different type of approach to the schooling. And the thing about going to art school is they don't um, like they're now. It's evolved. I mean, I went to school. 30 years ago or so, um, but they don't teach you the business part of it, you know, and that's, you know, being an artist is, is super involved because you have to come up with a concept, you have to um, make something, but then once you've made it, you have to either market it or else you have to have another job. And like a long, long time ago, I thought, oh, well, you know, I could teach, and then I'll go into my studio, you know, after I'm done teaching. And I said, all right, I'll do that when I'm 35, and then I'll do that when I'm 45, and then I'll do that when I'm 55. Now I'm almost 65, and I still haven't got that job, and now it's the, the job is not going to be there because I'm too old to teach, you know. But I don't, you know, I teach in my studio. I, I learn from my assistants, and I teach my assistants, and that's enough satisfaction. So... Um, I don't know if that, does that answer your yeah. question? Right. Um, I mean, I do. I mean, I'm sure it's a complicated thing. It's not going to be answered, in, I imagine, in a, like a paragraph. But yeah, right. I think it gets an idea across, absolutely. But how you feel about your work and how you feel about art in general. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I like going to the museum. Like, I'm really excited. There are two really good shows come at, at the MFA right now. There's a Matisse show. Um, one of the pieces of advice I got from one of my mentors when I was an undergraduate, and he was a graduate student, is go talk to the painters, go talk to the designers, go talk to the jewelers, go see what their perspective is, you know. Um, when you're a glass person, yeah, there's a whole lot of technical stuff that's involved in quote unquote the gloss, but there's also the art part of it, which is totally different, and it has to do with, you know, um, primary things like the colors, red, yellow, and blue, the shapes, circles, triangles, and squares. I mean, everything in this world is made up of shapes and colors. Um, some of them are organic, some of them are geometric, and they're all, you know, part of this world that is basically a bunch of, you know, energy, atoms, and, you know, air, and, you know, carbon, and, you know, it's, you know, they're, you could look at it on the really, Minutia, or you could look at it on the big, you know, wide scale. I mean, as I get older, I look at the historical perspective of my work itself. Um, like, we're documenting all of the work that I have in the studio for the show, and it's like, I've made a lot of work over the years, you know, and it's, it's like, well, which, what do we pick? What really signifies what is the best of the best that I have, you know, and without you know we're trying not in the show we're trying not to borrow too much um and just you know i've i've held back pieces uh over the years that are you know have sentimental value if you can have sentimental value you know um 
that, that are going to be shown and it's going to be sort of a transition of what, what art means to me, which, you know, a lot of it means that I work with glass, a lot of it means that I'm taking a concept, a lot of it means that I'm busy during the day because I have something to do. And it's a learning process. You make your mistakes and you learn from them, you go on and make the next thing. And you go on and you do the next thing. And so um, that's sort of, you know. colors in your glass? Can you, can you talk all about, you know, how you decide to implement colors and if there's any that, that you like to work with or, like, you know, colors as a, as a subject, really. You know, where, where does that, how do you start to decide on things like that? Well, I throw it around a lot with my assistants, for one thing. Um, there are, when you're talking about color, there's a couple of different um, things that have to be established. One, the glass I use is all clear. So the, it, I used to use what they call, it's interesting, they call it clear glass. I just had a glass delivery yesterday, and the guy, we were talking, and he said, yeah, I deliver clear glass, and then I deliver this, you know, um, I guess you'd call it opto white. I, I use opto white, but ultra clear glass that has the iron, the green has been taken out of it. So even though clear glass is is green, but then there's the ultra clear glasses which are decolored so that they have no color. And then there are colored glasses that they make, but in the plate glass industry, there's gray, um, bronze. Uh, there's a, a, a blue that they've made and then there are the clear glasses. And then there, there are the sort of stained glasses like um, that, but they're not, they're not flat and so I don't use those. And then what happened was I was working here in my studio and there used to be a chemist in the other end of the building and he said, you know, you can color the adhesive and I was like what are you talking about and he said well you can put dyes in it so that was in 1992 I started working with dye and I started finding companies and one of the things that I sort of pride myself on is the ability to deal with the industry so I would call people up and say I understand you make this material could I get a sample of it and try it you know so I went through and I went up the food chain and learned what the dyes were, what, you know, dyes they, you know, there's dye for clothing, there's dye for the printing industry, um, in the plastics industry they use dye, they use, you know, dye and or pigment in the paint industry. So I discovered that there was pigment that was a, a, a more color fast, longer lasting, denser color. And so I started using pigment which ended up being a bit of a problem because pigment blocks light and so you can't cure the adhesive with the pigment. So then I got into all of this chemical stuff um, in terms of dealing with how to make this, the, the adhesive cure. So um, I have a base of colors. I have blues, yellows, greens, orange, red, in violet or purple, you know, and there's the Roy G. Biv, you know, the ultramagnetic spectrum of color and light. And it, a lot of it is picking colors that go well together, and it's also um, either, you know, monochromatic or, um, you know, more than one color mixed with a color that will be a complement of it. So, you know, we do like the piece here is uh, blue and yellow. So blue and yellow makes green. So then, you know, we're bringing in a secondary color. So it's really organic, your whole process. Very organic. And one of the things when you ask about the color, it's like the pieces. I, you know, it's sort of, it's an interesting contradiction because I can do a drawing, which I lay out on a piece of paper which comes from maybe a paper doll, like I've cut out a shape out of a piece of paper and then I lay it on the drafting machine. I draw it out, then I measure it and dimension it and everything. And then I go and I mix up a couple of different colors and I say, I'm gonna make this piece, it's gonna be red, yellow, and blue, the primary colors. And I glue it together and then all of a sudden the piece is done and I'm like, hey, that isn't, you know, 
what is it? That's the accident. That's the mystery. That's the magic. That's the art part of it. Because it, it, you can do all the planning you want, you know, and then it turns out different than you expected. It's sort of like John Lennon had this great line that life happens while you're making other plans, and it's true. You know, you never know. You get up in the morning, you come into the studio, um, you have a plan or you don't have a plan, depending on the day, and then you know you could say all hell breaks loose or life happens and you f you know you figure it out you know and um like getting back to we were discussing earlier sometimes you can make a piece it can go so smoothly that it's you know no problem whatsoever and then you work on a piece and you work on it and you make a mistake and you have to cut it apart and then you have to re-glue it and you know and you keep going and going and you know, it's like, well, why did I even start this piece? It's like it becomes somewhat of a, a nightmare or a burden to be working on it. But, you you know, one of the things is um, I think the one of the biggest issues with being an artist is having perseverance, you know, having a, you know, having a belief in yourself, knowing that um, what you're doing is is satisfying to you, but it also satisfies other people in the long run. And, um, you know, like I say, I make the work because that's what I do, but the work, I mean, I can only house so many pieces, so they have to go somewhere. And then that gets into the economy, and that gets into that whole subject of how you deal with your artwork as far as how you market it. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, so like are you, do you, when you run into that, are you like, nope, not working, next thing, or are you like, no, this, this idea from its inception needs to become something one way or another, and do you persevere? And, uh, it's a weird workflow question. But. No, no, it's, it's a really good question, and, and, and it's, it sort of gets to the core of, you know, I am you know, like uh, unbowed, you know, I just keep going at it, you know, and 1% um, of all of the work I do, do I totally scrap? I keep, I keep things around forever and I, you know, I'll say, oh, I'm going to get back to that and never get back to it or I got to have this for the show and I just, it doesn't matter if I'm here until, you know, 10 o'clock at night um, for a week straight trying to get the thing done, I'll, I'll work on it and work on it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, each piece has its own, it, it's sort of like, it's like anything else. It has its, its organic basis where it starts as a concept and it grows, and it may grow um, with lots of water and lots of sunlight, or it may grow, you know, with the wind blowing really hard and it raining every day. You never know, you know, and that's the whole point is that it is, um, well, what is the word? Uh, the, you know, there are people who have jobs and then there are people who have careers. And it's a career for me. So it doesn't matter. Like, um, it's one of the lines, like, as an artist, there's a lot of, um, what would the word be? Uh, you want to be liked by everybody. You want people to like your work, but not everybody's going to like your work. And one of the things is not all the galleries are going to like your work and not all the galleries are going to show your work. And you may be with a gallery for a while and then they say, well, this isn't working out. Well, my general feeling in line to a lot of the galleries like that is it doesn't really matter if you show my work or not because I'm still going to make it. So, you know, maybe five years from now you'll come back to me and you'll say, oh, I was wrong, I should have kept, you know, hanging with you, or, you know, you just go your separate ways, but, you know, there's always, um, there's always coming to the studio. There's no question that that's not going to happen. Like, um, I'm getting to the age where people retire. A lot of my, a lot of people I went to school with in Illinois when I was in grade school and high school, they're all retired now, you know, and they, 
I can't see retiring. Yeah, I'd like to be able to fish more than I do, but um, like to, you know, enjoy more music. But I'm still going to work. I still, you know, I mean, I. It's one of the weird things now. I, at, the older you get, the more you reflect on. Well, should I have? Shouldn't I? Done this in the past, but also, oh well, I only have this much time left. How many? You know, should I be real selective? What am I going to make? You know. Yeah. I don't know, you seem like a very structured guy. Like, you know how to physically, sometimes artists are so abstract um, that, I don't know, let me think of how I want to ground this question, but when I see you making fixtures like that, right, you you kind of have this machinist background, um, but then you've also got this, you know, really cool, beautiful artist background. How do, the, how do those two blend together? Like, you obviously seem to have a passion for, for more than just making abstract art. Right. Does the does the angular? I mean, does that sort sort of stuff like play into it? Um, being a machinist, or I don't know. <laughs> that is a bad question. No, not at all. No, that it. Um. What like what inspires in your art? You've got a lot of lines, a lot of dimensions. It's it's not round and bubbly necessarily. Right. It's, I I see it as as almost a little bit mathematical. Correct. Yeah. Well, it's, it's trying to be as scientific and as calculated as possible, but then having it not mean anything and not be for, you know, like, like I'm making vases. Like I just did an open studio last weekend, and I don't know how many people said, well, so the top comes off that so you can put a flower in it. No, the top doesn't come off that, and you can't put a flower in it, and that's not what it, it's about, you know. And so it's about something that isn't. So... Um, like when you talk about the machining and stuff, I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't want to say I'm a hack, but I'm, you know, just, uh, you know, well, like we've had this, we, we were discussing this earlier. Um, you can do stuff by hand. You can do stuff by drawing by hand, or you can do it on the computer using a drawing program. You can make something by hand. I mean, back in the day, you know, when they, before they invented the wheel or they invented iron or something, they had to figure out how to make tools because you have to make tools to make tools, right? So then you have a milling machine or a lathe, which will help you make a part out of metal. But now they have CNC machines where a computer tells the, you know, the um, machine what to do. And you just, you basically, um, watch the machine do the work for you. Um, it's really interesting, like there's this whole conversation in America today about all of these quote-unquote jobs that are going to be created, which to me that's a fallacy. There are no jobs that are going to be created because there are robots that do that now. Even in the glass industry, I, the, the glass that I use is called OptiWhite and it's made by Pilkington and they have a factory in Rossford, Ohio. They used to have 1,500 people working in that factory. Now they have 150 people and of those 150 people most of them are computer technicians that just sit in a room and watch a computer screen monitoring the temperature of the furnace or how the conveyors are running and how it's drawing the glass out as they're making the sheets of glass. So they're not gonna be replaced by humans because they're computers. Right. So what I do as an artist is I try to sort of fuse the hand, the mind, and the technology and try and make something that's totally different out of that. So I get a real kick out of the technological basis. But I have a way of learning where I only, I'm fortunate if I say this, I learn what I want to learn. So, and up to a point, like I could talk to you about the adhesives, or I could talk to you about the pigment technology, or I could talk to you about the glass technology. I only know so much. There's a guy who his life is that, where he makes the pigment, or he sells the pigment so he knows everything that's involved in it, or he makes the glass so he knows so much more about the glass than I do. I only know as much as I want to know 
but I always want to know more. So it's sort of like another oxymoron where, you know, and you can go off on tangents and it's sort of, it's an interesting perspective. My dad used to read about five or six books a week. And I always think to myself, if he came back, if they brought him in a spaceship back to Earth and put him in front, because he died in 1987 and he had one of the little baby original Macs on his office desk. If he came back and found out that he could read anything he wanted on a computer screen or actually on a little tablet, you know, because like we have a website and I monitor, um, you know, who's on my site and who's there. And one day I was looking at it with my son who's 13 and he says, oh, look, that guy did it on an iPhone. And I'm like, well, how'd you know that? And he said, well, see this column here? They're all the scale of the size of the screens. And it's so people, you know, use a screen that's like, what, they're three by six to look at an object that I make, whereas somebody else may be looking at it on a 30-inch screen, you know. And all of it is this electronic knowledge that's inside there that, you know, it's like Wikipedia or um, like on Amazon, you can read part of any book you want. Um, there are tons of sites where you can find information, and it's like, it's almost where we're overloaded with information, you know, like you, and that's where being in the studio, it's like, um, I mean, I hate to say this, but it's the, the truth, um, in this so volatile, scary, political time, I can come in here and turn on my music and start to do my work and I don't care what's going on in the world unfortunately I hate to say it but I can just hide in my little environment and be there doing my work and it's it's bad because you know I think that things that are happening now are not good but at the same time I can get away from it and do something and hopefully what I make will bring some joy to somebody you know and have some meaning for someone so um, does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, you know? yeah, and particularly the part about learning just what you need to know. You're always hungry for more, but you're not out to be a, a chemist. You're, right. You just learn what you need to know. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it's like, what's the saying? You know, he knows enough to be dangerous, you know? <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, um, I try not to get in, tr in trouble with what I know. And, you know, like that's one of the um, things with my whole the adhesive part. Uh, I'm like one of the only people in the world that uses the adhesive to do what I do. So like I go every two years to a convention called RADTECH, which is the radiation technology, which is ultraviolet radiation is what makes the adhesive grow and, or cure. And these um, guys are like, well, what do you do? And I say, well, I make sculpture out of glass and I use adhesive. And they're like, well, what do you do? Oh, uh, my company makes the, uh, the film that goes on to beer cans that gets, you know, printed. Like, I'll never forget one time I was in line for lunch and I was talking to this guy and he, he told me that his machine can print beer cans faster than they can fill them. That is scary to know that, you know, they're waiting for the beer to go into the can, you know, yeah. so that we can have one later. <laughs> Right. So how is your, yours is completely different. Like you are the clay glass base guy. Right. You're the only one. I think this is kind of fucked up. I don't know what the question would be, but I guess how did your work? Well, it goes back to that the line that I said when I said, you know, when somebody looks at my work and they go, wow, I've never seen that um, before. Because I wasn't able to blow glass and because I found limitations at that time in my creative process, I decided to make something that was different and it happened to be a vase. And it goes back to the, also the saying that, you know, I was frustrated because I couldn't blow glass so I wanted to make something that commented on the, the glass blowing process. But it also, you know, sort of comments on the whole glass object, you know, what is glass, you know? Glass is, you know, a window, it's a tabletop, it's something that you look through, it's something you drink out of. So I'm taking 
material that's intended for something else. My glass is intended to be a window or a tabletop, and I'm making it into a form of art. So that's the uniqueness of the art. Now, um, I could stack it together and not make it permanent, but I want it to have some sort of permanence to it, so I use an adhesive to hold it together. Well, in that process, I realized that I could do a lot of different things, and you know, it sort of evolved over the 40 or more years where it's gone from you know, one vessel to, like as an example, um, I'm really w well known for my plate glass vase, which I consider circles and strips. So I have this concept, it has like a vase inside a vase and there's planes there. Well, at one point, I couldn't make the work fast enough. I mean, the galleries were calling constantly, you know, can you send us a piece? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, I couldn't, you know, it was like, yeah, sure, I could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I might be able to help them out. So I said, one day I was in the studio and I thought, wow, I'm cutting all of these circles and they're stacking up into a tower and then I'm dividing them into three piles to make three pieces. What if I just make one that's all solid? And that was the birth of the solid vase form. And then I was like, you know, I've made 300 solid vase forms at this time or more, you know, in different variations. Um, they're all similar to the plate glass vase because they're the same drawing shape, but they're a totally different interpretation of the vase. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at um, how things are you know, made and interpreted and then responding to it. So, um, you know, that, uh, and then it, it's my style, you know, there, I mean, we didn't, you know, like when you say glass blowing, there's glass casting. Um, there's tons of, glass casting is like bronze casting, you know, that, well, there are two different types of glass casting. There's hot casting in sand or in a plaster mold, and then there's kiln casting where you're casting it, and that's basically, you know, a cold process that's turned around into a hot process that's turned into an object that's cold again. Um, I'm more of a fabricator. I sort of take parts and put them together. So it's sort of like I'm a constructivist. It, you know, I loved the Russian constructivist sculptor movement, and I my, my favorite sculptor of all time is David Smith. And he used to make constructions of squares, rectangles, circles, and weld them all together, and they were you know, he had names like cubi and things like that because they were cubic volumes that were put together. Um, so, um, you know, that's sort of my story in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely really interesting. So it's amazing just to hear. So you're the, you're the plate glass guy. Wow, well, I make plate glass sculptures and I deal with plate glass. Um, there are other people that use plate glass, there, you know, Larry Bell's really famous sculptor who, you know, used plate glass and put vacuum deposition, you know, he put metals on the surface of the glass and, you know, he made these cubes that, um, you know, are in museums and things and um, he made giant sculptures using glass. I mean, that's one of the things that I always think about, you know, is um, their scale, you know, and one of the, back the early part of the conversation interview, we were talking about the history of glass and everything. And it started out, people were making little pieces. And then they were making bigger and bigger and bigger pieces to the point where now people are filling rooms with glass and the, you know, giant structures inside atriums and things like that. And, I mean, is a piece that's this big any different than a atrium piece in terms of, you know, there's there's the concept and there's the fabrication and the object, but they're they're both the same in certain respects, but they're wildly different. And it's like, um, you know, you you start to deal with the physical parameters of um, weight. Uh, I mean, I can make a piece and it it weighs 20 pounds or I can make a piece that weighs 80 pounds. Now, how easy is it to move the 80 pound piece around? You know, and that, you know, they're, you know, like a, an artist I know is making rocks now, you know, does he, you know, 300 pound rocks. Um, 
I mean, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, they're great. They're incredible pieces, you know, awesome looking. But how do you move something like that, yeah. you know? No, I know oh. we should wrap it up, but I love that. I, I do love that you, any, any artist that we've, we've talked to, I like the way that they speak about their art in, in not a practical sense where it's like, well, yeah, in a practical sense where it's like, well, I, I do it because I like it, and it's not, um, I mean, you, you're very, like, you, you say you fabricate stuff, which I think is a unique way of being an artist, but that's what you do, and that's right. really, I think it's neat to own that and not, I mean, it's almost, you sound humble when you say it, but, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, a cool thing. You're honest with what your art is. Well, you have, I mean, that's the, you have to be honest with yourself, you know, as a person. And being an artist is sort of being honest with yourself because you're, you know, looking for something from within to put out, you know. And so, but you, you know, you can't control it. You know, that's, that's where that, back to that conversation of are you an artist or aren't you an artist? Well, you can't just say you're an artist. You have to one go to school to, I mean there are outsiders you know there's that whole outsider movement of people who do stuff you know like there's a great piece down at the Smithsonian of this guy that lived in I forget if it was North Carolina or something he saved uh, aluminum foil and there's this piece in the Smithsonian of a giant structure made out of aluminum foil that he saved over 20-30 years you know and it's like is it art or is it garbage you know because it was aluminum foil that he saved right so, but it's art, you know, because he was able to make it. Now, there are other people who, you know, like in the art world, there are, you know, I hate, you know, you're never supposed to say anything negative, but you get this thing where um, those who can't do, you know, teach, those who can't teach, teach art or PE. Um, and it's like, and then there are these people that criticize what they do you know like the critics and it's like well if you're so good at it why don't you make it yourself instead of you know I mean you can ruin somebody's career by saying that their work is garbage you know and that's your opinion and somebody will say well so-and-so said that the stuff is garbage and it's like well who appointed you master of the universe to determine what's good and what's bad because the idea with art is it should evoke something in somebody so Yes, it evoked something, but it evoked something negative, and we would rather evoke something positive and say, oh, I love George O'Keefe's flowers because they're so beautiful, you know, and that they are, you know. I mean, you go to the museum and you see a painting and you go, wow, that's really nice, you know. And so, you know, it, it, it's what makes the world go round, you know. If there wasn't an argument and if there wasn't, and I'm not saying an argument in a bad way, I'm saying an argument in an intellectual pursuit of what, it means, you know, and that's what art is, is, you know, is there meaning in art, you know? I mean, like, as an example, the uh, National Endowment for the Arts, I think, what is it, it's like a dollar a person or something is their budget for, it's like this crazy, like, it's so minimal that it's like to, to decide that you want to get rid of the National Endowment for the Arts as a punitive, it's more like punitive than it has any economic value. It's like you could probably make 15, you know, no, you could make one F-14 with the amount of money that they give to the arts. Is it, is it really worth it to make that extra F-14 when you could look at this country, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people and there are little kids that, you know, like I have you know, seeing people that, you know, go in, like you go somewhere and they start making art and they go, oh, I can't make art. And then you give them a pencil and a piece of paper and all of a sudden they're drawing this and they're drawing that. And before you know it, they're getting into that what they call the zone, you know, where they flow with what's going on. And that, that can't happen if you stifle that. And it's like a lot of the um, thought today comes, you know, Earlier, I said something about RISD. Well, it ends up RISD actually is a brain uh, tank now that a lot of companies are going to RISD for their concepts and their ideas instead of going to MIT or Harvard. You know, they find that the artist has a different way of looking at it that might be of value to their companies. So they're looking for them for advice. So, you know, artists are important all through history. Artists have had a role, you know, in society. 
and to, to not appreciate it and to not respect the fact that, you know, I mean, it, it takes a lot to be an artist. It takes a lot of um, drive. It takes a lot of uh, perseverance and, you know, and a lot of people don't, the other, you know, I hate to be, I'm not a statistician, but one half of one percent of all artists make a living making art. That's not, that's not a lot of people, you know. And then you get, you know, it's sort of like a pyramid scheme. You know, there's a couple at the very top that make, you know, they make a painting and it's a million dollars. Well, what about the 500 people that on Saturday morning when they get up, they say, I'm going to go into my garage and I'm going to hit that easel and I'm going to start painting, you know, or we're going to go to the beach today and I'm going to get my easel out and paint the ocean, you know, and it's like, um, they do it because they want to, not because they're making money doing it. Sidney so. continues to work out of his studio in Newton, but he often showcases his work around the country. He is known as one of the more talented plate glass artists of our time, and he thoroughly enjoys what he does. Blindside is a sandwich community TV podcast. Subscribe to us on your favorite platform or visit us directly at www.sandwichcommunitytv.org so you can stay up to date with all the newest content. Thanks for listening.